Our lesson of the day is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. I will begin in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Father, we, we do ask that today you would continue your good work of building and fitting us together as a holy temple in which you will dwell a house for you built upon Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone and those apostles and prophets who were His messengers to us. Father, do this for us, for the glory of Your name and for the good of Your people. Amen. One of the most famous attractions at Disney World is the ride, It's a Small World. Uh, even those who haven't been to Disney World have uh, probably heard about it, at least through the song. Uh, it was originally designed and built for the 1964 World's Fair. And uh, the ride features 500-plus sculptures of children from all over the world. And, of course, it's supposed to produce these warm, fuzzy feelings that we're really all brothers and sisters, that the world is a small and cozy place after all, and we should all be able to be friends with one another. Of course, that dream isn't new. Uh, It's the dream that drove the Tower of Babel uh, all the way back in Genesis 11. It's the dream that stood behind the formation of the United Nations. It's the dream that drove Martin Luther King, Jr., It's the dream that we can all get along, that the whole human race can live as one. But can that dream come true? Can the human race live as one? You might look at the world around us today and say, no way, no how. There's just too much sin and division and corruption. It can never happen. The human race can never live as one. But if the gospel is true, the answer must be yes. If the gospel is true, that dream can come true. And Paul shows us why and how here in Ephesians 2. 
The gospel announces the formation of a new humanity. Humanity 2.0, the new and improved version, if you will. The first humanity corrupted by sin. Now there is a new humanity redeemed in Christ. And this new humanity, this new human family, puts God's salvation on display. What is God's salvation? God's salvation must not only overcome the enmity between God and humanity, it must also overcome our enmity between one another. Not just the ways we oppose God, but the ways we oppose one another. This is the story Paul tells here, the story of reconciliation, the story of salvation. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here he describes the old humanity, uh, the Gentile nations, the Gentile people groups, their condition. says they were uncircumcised. That means they were outside the covenant God made with Abraham. That's how the Jews who were circumcised as a badge of their membership in the family of Abraham, that's how they viewed the Gentiles as uncircumcised and therefore outside of the covenant. He says they were at one time separated from Christ. So they were not part of the human family that would produce the Christ, that would bring the promised Messiah into the world. He says these Gentiles were alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. Of course, they had many gods, but they did not have the God. And so they were without God in the world. Now, Paul's not saying here there were no Gentiles who were saved in some way before Jesus came. There were actually many Gentiles who put their faith in the God of Israel. But as a generalized description, this is true of who the Gentiles were, the pagan peoples, the pagan nations. This description of fallen humanity outside of God's covenant and apart from God's grace really parallels the description that Paul gave earlier in chapter 2, which we looked at last week, where Paul describes the Gentiles saying to them, You were dead in sins and trespasses following the course of the world. The world as it's arrayed in rebellion against God. Following the power of the prince of the air. That is Satan. You were in bondage to him and blinded to him. And then he goes on to describe them as objects of God's wrath. God was justly angry with the peoples of the world. But you know, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 2, when Paul's giving that very bleak description of humanity in the old, the, the, the old humanity, humanity outside of Christ, outside of God's grace, he interrupted that bleak description by saying, but God. He interrupts that bleak description by saying, but God, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us and goes on to describe God's salvation. Paul does the same thing here. It runs in parallel. He gives this bleak description of how the Gentile peoples were and then he breaks into that bleak description interrupting himself by saying, but now, but now, but now in Jesus Christ. That now suggests some decisive event has taken place to change things, to change the situation. And it's an event that has happened in Christ Jesus. It has to be His death and resurrection. And so what has Christ accomplished? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near. 
that language is reminiscent of the way the animal offerings are described in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. The animal offerings are literally described as near bringings. That's the best translation of the world. They're near bringings. They're brought near to God. The word describes something that's brought to God's altar, something that ascends into God's presence, up into the heavenlies. Those animal offerings were near brings, brought near to God on behalf of the people. Well, Paul's now saying this is true of the Gentiles, not because of animal blood that's been shed, but because of the blood of Jesus. These Gentiles who were distant from God, who were defiled and unholy, have now been brought near to God. They are the near bringings. It's like Jesus Christ is the high priest, but rather than bringing an animal offering into the most holy place, He now brings the Gentiles with Him into the very temple of God, into the very presence of God. And now he presents these Gentiles to God, bringing him with them into God's presence so they're seated with him even in the heavenlies, as he said earlier in the chapter. Christ has opened up the heavenly sanctuary so both Jews and Gentiles together can draw near coming before the very throne of God in His heavenly sanctuary. In fact, you see this down in verse 18 where Paul says, for through Him, that is through Christ, we both that is, Jews and Gentiles, have access. See, there it is. Access in one spirit to the Father. We've been granted access. We can come before God. We can be brought near to Him in Christ Jesus, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him through the blood of Jesus who makes us acceptable. So Paul says, Jews and Gentiles together have been reconciled to God the Father through God the Son and in God the Spirit. And so now together we have access. All the veils have been torn. We can come before God in the most holy place. We have access to Him. But it's not just that we have been reconciled to God as good as that is. Paul also shows we have been reconciled to one another. It is so hard for us to grasp how deep the racial and tribal divisions were of the ancient world. We think we know a thing or two about racism because of our nation's history. The ancient world was a deeply racist and tribalist place. And the biggest division of all in the human race in the ancient world was the division between Jews and Gentiles. The division between Jews and Gentiles, which had originally been put there by God Himself. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis when God chose Abraham. We read a little piece of it, a little snippet of it in Genesis 12 this morning. God separated out Abraham. God separated out the family of Abraham from all the other nations of the world. Genesis 11, Genesis 10, you've got the table of nations. In Genesis 11, you've got the scattering of those nations at Babel. And then you've got God picking out one of those nations, one of those people groups, the family of Abraham to be his own special people, to be a nation of priests, to do his work in the world, to carry out his mission. And ultimately through them, God says he will bring the promised Messiah, the King and Redeemer. God will bring the Christ into the world. God later gave to the family of Abraham the law of Moses, the Torah. In Abraham's day, he gave them circumcision as a sign of the covenant He had made with them. Later on, He gives them the Torah, the law of Moses, as a badge of the covenant that He has given to them. And of course, circumcision and the requirements of the law set up all kinds of barriers between Israel and the nations. 
to keep Israel from intermixing too much with the Gentiles. Now, the Jews were supposed to serve the other nations. The Jews were supposed to love them and teach them God's truth and act as priests on their behalf. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they would offer 70 bulls for the 70 nations of the world that are in that table of nations in Genesis 10. So they would act as priests on behalf of the world. But they were also to keep to themselves in a certain sense. They were to stay distinct from the nations for a time until God's purpose for them as a people was fulfilled. But you know what Israel did? Israel took that badge of circumcision that should have humbled her. And Israel took that law that also should have humbled her, a law that called her to be a a loving and, and wise people. And Israel took the purpose God had given to her, the mission God had given to her, and Israel twisted that mission and that purpose. She turned her priesthood into pride. And instead of serving the nations, she hated them. And the nations were happy to hate her right back. And that's the history of Israel recorded for us in the Old Testament. With a few exceptions, it's mostly Israel hating the nations and the nations hating her. Israel giving up her distinctness and becoming like the other nations around her. A people not full of love and wisdom, but a people who share the same animosity and enmity that all the nations around share. But just as Jesus reconciled humanity to God, so he has reconciled Jew to Gentile. And that is Paul's burden to show in this passage. And he does it. Look at verses 14 and 15. Paul says Christ himself is our peace. Not just peace between God and man, but peace between Jew and Gentile, these rival people groups. He himself is our peace who has made Both one. He has made the two one. And Paul says he has broken down the middle wall of separation, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. What is Paul saying here? There's a lot of complicated language here. We've got to be careful how we understand this. The law that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses did not command enmity. It did not tell the Israelites to hate the Gentiles or to look down on the Gentiles. Just the opposite, in fact. God said, I'm setting you apart to serve them. I'm setting you apart to love them. I'm setting you apart so you can show them, you can show the nations what my mercy looks like. You can show them my goodness. The Jews ended up taking the legitimate ways in which the law distinguished them from the Gentiles and they turned those legitimate differences into a reason for enmity. A reason for pride. Ah, we're different. We're better than you. We despise you. The world would be a better place without you. You make the world an unclean place. They even modified the architecture of the temple to embody their enmity. See, the temple was set up with the most holy place where God's throne was, the the, the Shekinah glory of God dwelt, and then the holy place where the priest would go in, and then an, an, an outer courtyard. And in that courtyard, actually Jews and Gentiles, according to God's design, God's plan, would be free to mingle. And even Gentiles could bring certain sacrifices. They couldn't participate in the Passover. But the Gentiles were welcome and invited and were supposed to be encouraged to come and offer sacrifice to the true God. But the Jews said, nope, 
That's not what we're going to do. We're going to build yet another wall to put the Gentiles even further out. We're going to segregate ourselves more completely from the Gentiles. And so they built this wall that God did not intend. They segregated themselves even more than God designed, creating this court of the Gentiles, uh, kind of sectioning off the Gentiles and saying, you can stay here, but we're going to be over here, separating themselves even more. The blueprint that God gave to Moses didn't have a court of the Gentiles. The temple plan given to Solomon or to Ezekiel did not have a court of the Gentiles that segregated them completely from the Jews in this way. The Jews added this wall, this middle wall of partition, this segregating wall, so that they would be not just separated from the Gentiles in the ways God wanted them to be separate, but because they were hostile to the Gentiles, hostile to the nations. They were at enmity. They wanted to show off how special they are and keep everybody else at a distance. The Jews added that middle wall in because of their racial pride. They became openly hostile and at enmity with the Gentiles, hating them instead of loving them. And really, you see this attitude on the part of the Jews in a lot of places in the Old Testament, like Jonah, who didn't want to go preach to Gentiles because he hated them. And you see it right down into Jesus' day in the New Testament where there were a lot of Jews who were ready to revolt against Rome because these Gentiles are ruling over us, they would say. They didn't want to witness to Rome about God's love and God's mercy and God's gracious purposes. They wanted to go to war with Rome. And Jesus had to deal with these zealots who expressed their zeal for the law in terms of hatred for the Gentiles. That's really how many Jews came to see the fulfillment of the law, not as love, but as hatred. If we hate all the right people, we're righteous. If we hate our enemies, that'll prove we're righteous. If we hate those on the outside of Israel, that will prove we are righteous. And Jesus tried to teach them the way of peace. So much of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere is about seeking to instruct Israel how to show love and kindness to their Gentile Rulers, they're Gentile overlords, these Gentiles, these Roman rulers. You know, even showing kindness to their soldiers and their tax collectors. But this way of peace they would not know. They refused the way of peace Jesus showed them. Later on, the Apostle Paul really does the same. A little bit later, uh, Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles, taking the gospel of Christ to the nations. But this is precisely what got him into trouble with the Jews. There were a lot of Jews who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and they opposed Paul for that reason. There were some Jews who did think Jesus was the Messiah, but still thought you had to become Jewish to be a part of the people of God. And they also opposed Paul. In fact, the biggest controversy, the first really big controversy in the church that erupted and threatened to split the church almost from the very beginning was whether or not Gentiles as Gentiles could come into the church. Or did they have to become Jews first? The first big church council, it's described in Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem, was called to deal with precisely this question whether or not Jew and Gentile have really been reconciled in Christ. And here in Ephesians 2, you've got Paul writing a letter. He's writing a letter to the Ephesian Christians. He's writing from prison. Do you know why Paul was in prison? Do you know why Paul got thrown into a Roman jail? 
Look at Acts 21 and you'll see. He was arrested in the temple because Jews attacked him for bringing a Gentile into the temple precincts with him. Paul apparently brought a Gentile into the temple precincts with him, a Gentile Christian named Trophimus, who just happened to be from Ephesus. Isn't that interesting? And when Paul did this, the Jews cried out against Paul. They said, men of Israel, this man Paul, this is from Acts 21, men of Israel, this man Paul is teaching everyone everywhere against the law and against this place. That is, against the temple. He's against our law that distinguishes Jew from Gentile, and he's against this place, this temple, that distinguishes Jew from Gentile. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. That was the charge brought against the Apostle Paul, that he brought Greeks into the temple precincts. Luke tells us in Acts 21, it's because they saw Trophimus, this Ephesian man with Paul, that they thought he had been in the temple with Paul. And so they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and they were ready to kill him. They were ready to beat him to death when some Roman soldiers stepped in and actually saved Paul's life by stopping it. They end up arresting Paul. They arrest Paul for disturbing the peace. And that's how Paul ended up in a Roman prison. And that's where he was when he wrote this letter. Paul acted like the dividing wall of hostility had been broken down. Paul mixed Jew and Gentile in the temple. That was his great crime. For that, he was arrested and imprisoned. But as Paul says here, the enmity and hostility between Jew and Gentile should come to an end. It should come to an end. It should have come to an end at the cross. In fact, the division between Jew and Gentile that that God set up in Genesis 12, that the law imposed, that distinction, that division should now come to an end, Paul is saying. It has served its purpose. And it should be dissolved in the gospel. Jew and Gentile have now been made one in Christ, Paul is saying here. They should be mixed together freely in the church. And this is not the first time that this kind of mixing would have taken place. God gave some previews of this along the way. So when the Israelites came out of Egypt in the Exodus, there were actually some Gentiles, some Egyptians apparently, or maybe people of other nationalities who saw the God of Israel at work and said, yes, that's the God I want to trust in and serve. And the Israelites came out of Egypt with a mixed multitude. And for 40 years, that mixed multitude was incorporated into the nation of Israel. Another point in Israel's history, you have this when Naomi comes back from Moab into the land of Israel. She comes back as a mixed multitude, she comes back with Ruth, the Moabites. And of course, of course, Ruth is later incorporated into Israel. She's mixed into the nation of Israel and even becomes a, 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 uh, an ancestress of Jesus the Messiah. Those kinds of events should have shown Israel what was coming. They were little previews, foreshadowings, that this blessing that God has given to the people of Israel is really destined to flow out to all nations. Israel can't keep it bottled up. She can't keep it to herself. She can't act like all of God's blessing is just for her and hoard it. No, it's got to flow out to the nations. Look at how Paul describes what Jesus has done. This is back in Ephesians 2. Pick up with verse 15 and see what he says. 
says Jesus has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the Christ, through, through, the, through the cross, thereby putting death to the enmity. What did he do at the cross? He put to death the enmity, the rivalry, the hostility between these different people groups. And then Paul says he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That would be the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. That would be the Jews. What has Jesus accomplished in his cross? The reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to God. But not just that, the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to one another. So now that kind of unity that we as humans seek can be found. It can be found, but it can only be found in Christ and in His church. And the church is to manifest this kind of unity. To be the new human race, the new humanity. Where this kind of unity is seen and experienced. And so now the church, this new man, this new humanity, Jesus has created, composed of both Jew and Gentile who have trusted into him. This is the manifestation of God's salvation, the fulfillment of God's promises. We should be able to point to the church and say, this is it. This is what God promised. This is the fruit of Jesus' death on the cross. The enmity is over. The enmity has ended. Now that enmity didn't just go away right away. I've already told you in the pages of the New Testament, you see that it continues to be a real issue. So many of the letters of the New Testament are written to deal with basically how to keep peace, how to live out this peace between Jew and Gentile because they're so different from one another. And so convincing them that the enmity really is over is difficult to do. These people had built their entire identities on despising others who were different than themselves. And so to come along and take that away, it's not that easy. They've got very different lifestyles in all kinds of ways, different kinds of customs and traditions that have to somehow be melded together in the church as they learn to live together as disciples of Jesus. Paul goes on, verse 19, he says, Now therefore you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The Gentiles have been incorporated into this new Israel. They've been incorporated into the covenant people of God. God had promised this all along. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all the nations of the world. Now the nations are knowing that blessing and coming in. They're not strangers or outsiders anymore. And then in verses 21 and 21, he goes on to say that we are all together being built into a holy temple in the Lord with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets, his inspired spokesman as the foundation. The church is being built on Jesus and those who were inspired to deliver his truth to us. So we can say Gentile believers are not just given access to the temple. They are the temple along with believing Jews. We don't just have access to God's house. We are now God's house. We don't just enter God's sanctuary. We become his sanctuary. So that God dwells in us even as we dwell in God. Now there are a couple of important truths that follow from this. One of them not controversial, one of them quite controversial. One obvious application of this 
that I think is not that controversial is that the church must condemn all forms of racism. All forms of racial enmity must be shunned by the church. Racial enmity has no place in the church of God, no place among the people of God. If Jesus has made peace between Jew and Gentile, then he's made peace between every other warring group, you know, every other warring group as well. Every other group that would set itself against a rival. If he's made peace between Jew and Gentile, he's made peace between black and white, he's made peace between the Tutsis and the Hutus, peace between any warring rival factions within humanity. The cross is the end of tribalism. The cross is the end of racial boasting. The church mixes Jew and Gentile together. Indeed, it mixes all the races together in one body, one new humanity. The gospel creates a kingdom of many colors. The gospel creates a community that is both colorful and colorblind at the same time. The gospel does not obliterate our ethnic and racial identities, but it transforms them and unites them. The kingdom is colorblind in that there is no partiality. We don't treat people differently on the basis of their ethnicity. But it's also color conscious in that all the different races are embraced and harmonized and each ethnicity, each people group is invited to bring its peculiar treasures into the kingdom. This is one thing you see again and again in Scripture in Isaiah 60 and in Revelation 21 and 22. All the different nations of the earth bringing their peculiar treasures into the kingdom. Offering whatever it is God has enabled them to excel at. Now tragically, as we know from our own nation's history, sometimes Christians have been racists. Sometimes Christians have contradicted the gospel in this way. All kinds of terrible things have been done, even in the name of Jesus. So even in our own nation's history, though we were predominantly Christian, we had race-based chattel slavery. After that, we had Jim Crow laws that intentionally segregated the races and treated one race, blacks, as inferior. Got a history of lynchings, and we've had all kinds of other forms of discrimination and injustice and oppression. And again, sadly, these abuses were often defended by the church, or at least not openly condemned by the church. The church became complicit in them even by her silence. We know these are stains on our nation's history and the church's history. And all of these things are blatant contradictions of the gospel. But the reality is in 2018, we pretty much all know that. You know, there are many things I can say from this pulpit that are controversial. Many things I say from this pulpit that require courage to preach to you. But condemning racism is really not one of them. Not in 2018 anyway. And I think we should be very thankful for that. Now, if I were saying these very things in this city in, say, 1950 or in 1960, then, yes, that would have required a lot of courage. And, yes, it would have been very, very controversial. And I think that, in a way, tells you about the kind of progress we've made. We now know racism is a heinous sin against God. It's really just collective narcissism. 
Love of self projected onto the whole group of which I am a part. It's foolish pride, and it leads to all kinds of cruelty. There's no way you can fulfill the love commandments or the golden rule while being a racist. Just no way. It's the contradiction of God's law. It's the contradiction of God's gospel. And thankfully, our society, by and large, knows this. I'm not saying we don't have any problems with racism anymore. We will always have problems with racism because people will always be sinners. But as a society, collectively, we're largely in agreement that racism is wrong. I mean, even those who are relativists about all kinds of other ethical issues, certainly those who are relativists about, say, sexual issues, sexual ethics, they're relativists, so pretty much anything goes, would be moral absolutists when it comes to racism. They won't condemn any kind of sex action, but they will condemn racist actions. The question I want to ask is why? How did we get here? How do we know racism is wrong? It's a good thing we have such widespread agreement that racial enmity is wrong. But how did we get here? How do we justify our condemnations of racism? How did we get to this point where most everyone in our country and our culture agrees racism is wrong. In fact, that might be about the only thing you can get most people in our culture to agree on. Certainly in the church, we Christians see racism as a sin. We've got passages like this one that clearly condemn it. But even secular people in our culture are generally agreed with us on this point that racism is despicable. But why is that? It's especially, I think, a a, a powerful question to ask secularists in our culture. Why is racism wrong? We agree that it is. Why? I would argue, and I can't make a full case for this here, but I want to throw this out for you. I would argue that only the Christian faith can make an objective case against racism. That secularists might condemn racism, but they cannot justify their condemnations. They cannot make a case for human rights. They cannot make a case against racism. If you take the secular worldview and the secular story of origins, basically the Darwinian story in some form, what kind of argument can you make against racism? What kind of argument can you make against the notion that perhaps some genetic lines would be more highly evolved than others? Isn't that actually what you would expect if you start with Darwinism? If you actually look at the history of it, the first Darwinist in the 19th century very clearly saw and usually embraced the racist implications of evolution. Evolution leads to racism. And evolution has no way of condemning racism. Now, today's evolutionists might oppose racism, but they have no stable basis for doing so. And I think for us as Christians, that's a really important thing for us to know and understand and point out. See, in general, racism is opposed and condemned in our culture, so much so that accusations of racism are sort of the ultimate political weapon right now. If you can accuse your opponent in a political race of being a a racist, then you've got a great chance of winning, right? I mean, that's how things are uh, in our culture largely today. We agree racism is wrong, but why? How has it happened? 
Well, it's basically because of the influence of the Christian faith. It's because of the influence of passages like this one right here in Ephesians 2. And even secularists, even non-Christian secularists, have been deeply influenced by the gospel at just this point. They're living on borrowed capital. And I say it's time they paid it back. And the way to do that is by joining us in our faith. And I think this is one of the ways we call them to faith. You want to condemn racism? You know it's wrong? Why? You're not going to find an objective basis for condemning racism in your worldview, but we have one over here as Christians. You know it's wrong, so come and join us. Join us in our faith. Acknowledge this. See, really interesting, if you go back and you read the speeches and, and, and letters and writings of Martin Luther King Jr., how did he make his case? How did MLK make his case against racism? He consistently appeals to the teachings of the Bible. There was nothing secular about his attack on racism. Nothing secular about the case that he made for civil rights, for human rights. It all went back to the Bible. MLK knew there was no secular basis for human rights, no secular basis for condemning racism. Instead, he pointed to the biblical basis for these things, the biblical basis for human rights, the biblical basis for integrating the race, the races. And so you read the writings of MLK and constantly he's quoting Jesus and Paul and the prophet Amos. He doesn't appeal to some kind of common human nature. It's our common human nature that is the problem after all. Because that common human nature is fallen. He appeals to the teachings of the Bible. He appeals to gospel truths. Reminding people who should have known these things all along. Now, MLK had his problems. He had his theological problems. He had moral problems. But he was exactly right to remind our culture of these biblical truths. And this is why he won the day. Because he brought his faith with him into the public square. And he announced these gospel truths to our culture. Secularists can oppose racism. We can be thankful that they do. But they cannot tell you why they do so. They cannot justify their opposition to racism. And in fact, their worldview really tends in the other direction towards a kind of racism. The only consistent answer to racism is going to be found in the Scriptures. The teaching that we are all made in the image of God. And the teaching that through Christ, the different races can be reconciled. These different racial groups that are hostile to one another can be brought together. The answer to racism is found in the gospel. Ephesians 2 shows us racial animosity and pride must be nailed to the cross. Jesus killed racism then and there at Calvary. Jesus is the only possible solution to the problem. Jesus is the only answer to the problem of racial animosity. He and He alone has abolished the enmity. Anti-racism can't just be equated with the gospel, but the gospel is certainly anti-racist and racism is certainly anti-gospel. And again, you see this all over the place in the New Testament Scriptures. Galatians 3, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. We're brought together in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 7, the, 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 the picture of the redeemed that John is given, it, they're described as a great multitude drawn from every tribe, people, language, and nation. 
The Great Commission is a command to go out and disciple the nations in Matthew 28. To bring all different kinds of people into the church where we can all mix and mingle together and become one with one another. God has painted His image bearers in many colors. And He embraces them all into His kingdom by faith in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? It means the church is the place where the world becomes small. It's a small world after all. Why? Because of Jesus. The United Nations is the parody of which the church is the reality. This is where the nations are truly united. The church is where the dream comes true. The dream of a united humanity. Only in Christ and in His church can the many humanities become one. Only in Christ can the fragmented races be reunited into one race. Jesus reunited Jew and Gentile. He brought about this reconciliation. And what this meant, practically speaking, is that each group had to look at the other and say, forgive us. We've wronged you. Forgive us. And each group had to look at the other and say, you've wronged us, but we forgive you. You're forgiven. We're reconciled. And that's how it is. That's what the Gospel does. That's for every group that is at odds with some other group. The Gospel says, look at them and say, forgive me. Forgive us. And the Gospel says, look at them and say, I forgive you. We forgive you. That's what the Gospel does. That is the power of the Gospel. Now, there's one other thing here, and I'm going to be much briefer with this. This one is actually, I think, the more controversial uh, in our day. What does this show us in Ephesians 2? What does it show us about the church? It shows us the centrality of the church. Yes, the church has failed in all kinds of ways, even in this particular area. We haven't always lived this out the way that we should. But still, Ephesians 2 shows us the gospel is central. The gospel is puts the church at the core of everything. It's really clear from this passage in Ephesians and from the whole rest of the letter that God's purposes for creation and history center around the church. The church is the temple God is building to dwell in. If you go look at old cities, you know, not our modern American cities with all their skyscrapers, but old cities, they always have a church in the center and the steeple would be the tallest structure you saw. And that was a symbolic, geographic, and architectural picture of the way God made the world with the church at the center. But you know, not even most Christians really believe that. And so we look to our nation, the nation of America, to be central in history, and we become nationalists more than Christian. Or we look to the family to become the center of everything, and we become Uh, so centered on the family that the church gets pushed to the side. We tend to treat the church like vitamins that you can take to supplement your diet. But that's what the church is, just to kind of supplement when my getting my real nourishment elsewhere. And Paul says, no, the church is central because you have to understand what the church is. The church is not a social club. It's not some kind of human organization. The church is God's own house. This institution is built and guarded by God. The church has the promises of God that really no other institution can claim. The church is the center of God's salvation. The church doesn't dispense or control salvation. 
But the church is the place of salvation, the manifestation of salvation, the shape of salvation. This is where God's salvation is found. This is what God's salvation looks like. This is God's recreated and reconciled humanity, the church. The means of salvation have been given to the church. Only in the church can we realize fully our purpose for living. Only in church can we find the kind of community that God calls us to, that God made us for. The church has many critics, but no rivals. The church may sin, the church may stumble, but not even the gates of hell will prevail against her. The church has many rivals, but none who really compare with her. The church is the center of the world. The church is the center of history. Why? Because the church is right at the center of the heart of God. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, we do thank You for making us Your church, Your new humanity. And we pray that Your new humanity would grow and spread and fill the earth that more and more people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language would be incorporated into this new humanity of the church. That your promise to bless all the peoples, all the families of the earth might come to fulfillment. That your purposes of global salvation may be fully realized. May the Great Commission be fulfilled and the promises to Abraham fulfilled. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.